Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. As we're continuing our series in um, the letters to Revelation, and the series will likely continue as we continue to, to uh, study Revelation beyond these letters to see what this message is that Jesus has for, for John and for the churches that John uh, was directed to write to and that what Jesus' word would have to say to us today. And so uh, we read what Jesus himself says to John to give to the uh, church at Thyatira. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter work succeed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. And to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of God's word. So Jesus begins with his, uh, as he does often in this series, we have seen uh, there's kind of seven parts to each one of these addresses that Jesus gives to the churches. Uh, usually begins with a description of Christ and then a commendation and then a rebuke and then a solution and then a consequence for disobedience or uh, the persistence in what they're doing. And then usually a call to hear and then a promise for the conquerors. Uh, those last two, as you may have noticed, uh, in this to the directions to this church, those last two are actually reversed. He actually gives a promise to conquerors, and then he ends with the call to hear. And this he will do with the, the remainder of the churches as well. So the, the same basic seven are still there. And so Jesus introduces himself. He says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we, we saw that this actually it echoes what John sees in chapter 1, especially in verse 14, where it says the hairs of his head were like uh, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. 
And this kind of points to uh, the, the refining in the furnace part, points to his, his utter holiness and his purity. And the eyes being like a flame of fire, I think, will, will make a little more sense when we see what Jesus has to say to them later on. And so he gives them, as he does many of these, he gives them with a commendation. I know your works. And he actually gives five things. He lists four, four terms first. And so here are the first four. Love, faith, it says service. It could be service or ministry. The word's the same uh, either way. So it's love, faith, service, or ministry, and it says patient endurance. In the Greek, it's just one word, uh, but it means endurance, long-suffering. There's old, old translations for it. Um, so he knows what it is that they're going through, and he just summarizes by saying, I've seen your love, I've seen your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance. So in other, ways, in other words, you can see some of these uh, love and faithfulness uh, being a description of kind of the fruit of the Spirit. He's, he's looking at the lives of the, thi- the Thyatiran church and he says, this is what I have to say about you. You're growing. You're growing. You're displaying the attributes of what it means to be a Christian. Love and faith. That you're serving. That you're patiently enduring. That you're we're, we're looking forward to the day that Christ returns or that we get go to home to meet him. And it's a long journey. It's a walk. And we're, we're enduring it. And then he adds a fifth one, which I think is, uh, uh, it would be helpful for us to, to see and apply this to ourselves. It says, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Your latter works exceeding the first. Again, pointing to the growth of the Christian life. Growth in what these characteristics and attributes of what a Christian should display. Growth in the fruit of the Spirit's work in their, their lives. And notice how there's the kind of the contrast here with the use of the word the latter and the first you know, that your, your latter actually exceeds your first and how different that is from the church in Ephesus who he sees, he goes, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. Okay, so even though the church of Ephesus, they may have been doctrinally sound and stood against evil. He says, but their passion for Christ and for others kind of waned over time. Uh, the church in Thyatira, is, they kind of do the opposite. They were growing. They're growing over time. What a lesson that would be for for us. So I I would ask this. Are you growing? Are you growing in the Christian life? Just take a moment and think about that. Some of you maybe have not been a Christian for very long. I think many of you have been a Christian for a very uh, long time. And where are you now compared to where you were? When you first were a Christian, to where you were five years ago, to where you were last year. Have you, are you growing? Have you developed a deeper faith commitment to Christ? A deeper dependence upon him? 
Is your, is your faith in Christ stronger today than it was when you first believed? Is your love for Christ deeper? Is your love for others deeper the longer that you have been saved? Are you serving Christ more right now in the church and in your vocations the longer that you walk on this journey? Or are you going in the opposite direction? Is, is, your, is your love growing cold? Is your heart getting smaller? Is your faith and dependence on Christ crumbling? Is your service for him waning? Is your patient endurance for him just kind of turned into, I'm going to sit and take a break for a while? What a challenge that is for us. May we be like the Thyatiran church in this regard. May we be growing in our love, in our faith, in our knowledge of Christ and his salvation, and that he would be developing in us a deeper a uh, more truer walk with him. So is that true for you? Where are you right now in those categories? Love, faith, ministry, and endurance. Are they, are they better now than they were before? If not, ask Jesus to help. If not, turn and ask Turn and say to Jesus, Jesus, I come back to you. My faith, my love has been waning. My service has been kind of suffering. You've given me everything. Help me to have a deeper relationship with you and a deeper walk with you. And, and I would say this. We, we should also be imitating Jesus in this part. So not only should we be imitating the Thyatiran church, we should be imitating Jesus here. And by that, I mean, Jesus's searching and penetrating eyes are looking at the works of this church. And he sees, I know what you're doing and I know how it is that you're growing. Um, have you done that with other believers? Do you gather regularly with other believers and hold one another accountable for your growth and their growth? When was the last time you've uh, gone to a person and said, you know what, I've, I've really noticed a growth on your part. I've seen a, a greater uh, passion for scriptures. Or I've seen, I've seen your, your uh, readiness to pray increasing than from when I first knew you as a Christian. Or I've seen, boy, I've seen you, you're really your service for, for Christ and what you do or how passionately you commit to your occupation because of what Jesus has done. Um, may we imitate not only the Thyatiran church, may we imitate what Jesus does here. So may we all like kind of have eyes on the lookout for the, the ways we have seen Christ formed in others. So this is the commendation that Jesus gives, but then he gives a rebuke in verses 20 and 21. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Here's the problem with the Thyatiran church. It was, if you would kind of think of one term to describe this church, it was a too tolerant church. A too tolerant church. Now, in this day and age, there's no such thing as being too tolerant, right? I, I saw this quote this week referring to the, the church at Thyatira. Their sin was toleration, the very thing commended in our postmodern culture as its greatest virtue. I'll say that again. Their sin, toleration, is the very thing commended in our postmodern culture as the greatest virtue. I think he added the word postmodern uh, there because it's uh, kind of the, the result or the implication of postmodern thought is that there is really no uh, really true right and wrong, that everything is kind of subjective and you don't have the truth anymore. You have your truth and her truth or his truth. Everybody has their own uh, truth and it only really conflicts it only becomes a problem if it really conflicts with my truth but everybody should just have their own kind of truth so tolerance and acceptance unless the person doesn't like the other person's truth and then they're um, then they're intolerant of their intolerance or intolerance of tolerance you see how this kind of ends up becoming a really bad thing Jesus is uh, rebuking this church for being too tolerant and they're too tolerant because of a, a particular issue. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Okay? Now, this likely is not her real name. This is probably a code word. We saw this last week uh, with the church in Pergamum with Balaam. Right? You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. And we saw that what he's doing there is he's causing them to, to think back to an Old Testament type that's being kind of lived out today. And so I think he's doing the exact same thing here. Jesus is referencing an Old Testament character that functions as kind of a code word for one particular person. And I believe in this case it is one particular person. It's not a group of people uh, because, uh, because he's, he's tolerating that woman and he's very specific. So you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, who is Jezebel? Boy, I wish we could do a study to really dig in deep to this. But uh, let me just begin by saying, if you want to go and look at these, uh, Jezebel, um, you can. She is in 1 Kings chapter 16. She appears there. And then she goes on into 2 Kings. So uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you could find some information about Jezebel, but let me give you some some highlights of her life. And actually, let me do it by reading a couple of scripture verses um, to kind of uh, to highlight a little bit of the summary of uh, what her life is and what she represents. Um, here at First Kings sixteen, and and if you would give me a moment, let me let me read the the whole passage, uh, even though I only have the uh, one verse on the slide. If you just kind of let me read the context here. First uh, Kings uh, 16, and I'll be reading like verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, okay, Asa would have been the king uh, of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. 
in the 38th year of Asa, Ahab, okay, notice that name, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. So you got to remember where we are in uh, the biblical storyline here. This is after David, this is after Solomon, this is after the people of Israel had actually divided into two different warring uh, groups, the ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And so the northern kingdom, so all of them are Israel, right, because they're all Israelites, but the northern kingdom was referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom was referred as Judah. And so you had different kings that were reigning over both of those. And so the writer here is just pointing out the time reference here. When Asa, the king of the southern kingdom, uh, was in his 22nd year, this guy named Ahab came to the throne in the northern kingdom. And he reigned for 22 years. And he says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. That's not, used, that's not unique for Ahab. That kind of summary statement of uh, Ahab is doing evil in the sight of the Lord is actually how every northern king was described. And most of the southern kings were described. What's, what is unique is that the writers here of First and Second Kings make sure to point out uh, who he's married to and who the queen is. And this is what you see in verse... 31 and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam like his predecessors the son of Nabat he so it, notice he's saying like as if that was just a minor thing that was bad enough that was grievous enough and he goes let me show you how much wicked more wicked Ahab was he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And went and served Baal and worshipped him. He goes on, the writer goes on. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab took, uh, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And he says that the main motivation for Ahab's wickedness actually comes because of the influence of Jezebel, his wife, who was uh, the daughter of a Sidonian king. Now, Sidon would be the region north of Israel not included into the people of Israel and who worshiped a completely different God. So this is why this becomes a kind of a problem. So here, let me give you a summary of her life. Actually, I think I have another verse here too. First Kings 21. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. My, to my recollection, I don't think any other king gets his wife thrown in into the description of his wickedness. He acted very uh, abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So let me give you some, some insight, uh, some summary high points of Jezebel's life. The daughter of Ethbaal, as we saw, the Sidonian. So she's a foreigner. She's not an Israelite. Uh, the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. So the, the tribe that was breaking away 
from the line of David that was supposed to stay in, in Judah. She actually worshipped idols. We saw a little bit of that here. She persecuted the prophets of God. Remember when Elijah has the encounter on Mount Carmel against the, the idols of Baal? This is, that's the time period of Jezebel. Jezebel's the one who's kind of putting out a bounty on Elijah. And after that incident, Elijah runs down into the wilderness and he's, you know, lamenting. Uh, they've killed all, she has killed all of the prophets. And then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah to, to comfort him. So she was going and finding out all of the prophets and killing the prophets of God. She vowed to kill Elijah too. Um, she accomplished the death of uh, Naboth and the Lord himself swore to avenge her. Just kind of a, a, a very, almost a unique situation in the Old Testament to personally avenge one, uh, one person. And she ended up dying at the hand of Jehu. And what was interesting is you can see this in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. Um, Jehu not only goes to kill her and even in her very last moments, she had this air of arrogance dressing up in her regal robes. And, and uh, it's, it's interesting, when Jehu goes, he looks at her up in the window of her like kind of castle or wherever she, she's dwelling. And um, she knows what's about to happen. She knows that he's coming there to, to kill her. And he says, throw her down. And the eunuchs that were in charge to like be protect, they throw her down. And she falls and it. The scriptures are uh, kind of R-rated. They said like her blood splattered against the wall. Really cool. Now I got the young kids' attention right now, right? They're like, whoa, that's in the Bible? Yeah, that's in the Bible. Okay? And so, uh, so what's interesting is he goes on there, and Jehu then, he doesn't stop there. He actually goes, and they specifically record all of her sons, uh, the, all of her descendants with Ahab. All of her children were wiped out so that it even says that no descendant of Ahab left. I mean, Ahab's line was hacked off right there, which is interesting when it says what Jesus says that he's going to do uh, to her uh, here later in this, this thing. So when it comes to Jezebel, picture the most evil, deceptive. You can close your eyes if you want to. The most evil, deceptive, sinister, arrogant, proud and wicked woman you can imagine. Okay, that's Jezebel and more. And so this becomes code word. This becomes code word for the most terrible of apostasy. And so, uh, again, like uh, Balaam, I don't think that it was a, a literal person named Balaam and his teachings in Pergamum. I don't think it's a literal person named Jezebel there, but there is a real person and she looks an awful like an awful lot like the Jezebel in the Old Testament. He's using this code word. And he says, this is their problem. You're tolerating this woman. You're not just tolerating the false teaching. You're tolerating the false teacher. And friends, I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that, quote, Jezebel, will reappear throughout the church age in many different forms. The real Jezebel troubled Israel and Judah, troubled the, the very prophets of God. 
So too here in this church, Jesus says, you have one there and she's Jezebel. And I think that as the, this, this person was troubling Israel, troubling Judah, per, troubling the prophets of God, as this person uh, in the church of Thyatira was troubling the believers there, we'll see many different Jezebels in, in our day all throughout church history. And so here's Jesus' judgment then on this Jezebel. It's twofold. Uh, he will judge the false teacher and he will judge those who tolerate her. So he will give his judgment on the false teacher. Notice verse 22. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed. So that's the, the judgment on her specifically. And then he goes on. Here's there's a judgment on those who tolerated her and those who commit adultery with her. I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of their works. And then he adds this word. And I will strike her children dead. It, I, I mean I read that line. After reading all of the account of Jezebel. And Jehu. And going and killing Jezebel. And then going and tracking down all of her children. And killing them. I was like. Uh, it's almost like the person who says these words. Knows the story. The biblical story. Right? Uh, that's a joke. Jesus knows. Jesus says these words. Okay. Um, but notice, notice here, even though there's a judgment against the false teacher and that there's judgment against those who tolerate her. You have this offer for repentance. Jesus still holds out the offer of forgiveness. Unless they repent of their works. He says, I'm going to throw her down. I'm going to throw her those who commit adultery with her down. However, that the act of believing in her and buying into what she says is not, a, is not alone enough for, to disqualify you. If you repent. If you repent. If you come back from believing false teaching, Jesus, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, who uh, has this, this uh, two-sided sharp sword coming out of his mouth, he will receive those who turn from the false teaching. Even right here in his issuance of judgment here, he goes, unless, unless there's one last hope you have before this judgment comes, if you repent. How about you? How about, how about us? Is there anything that you need to repent of? Is there, is there any teaching that you hold, have held, um, that needs to be turned away from? Have you been in defiance against something that the scriptures teach? Have you been in disobedience to what God calls you to do, calls you to know, and calls you to believe? 
Surely, and if, if that's the case, surely as we are sitting here, and if, if all of you have breath in your lungs, you have still have time to repent. At one time, I, I think in multiple times, I would say that looking back, I've held some teachings that looking back now, uh, I'm embarrassed that I've held those, those teachings. Looking back now, I've, I've held on to things and believed things and actually spoke things uh, in my Christian life that look back and I go, I think holding to those doctrines actually didn't bring glory to Christ. I advocated for things that, uh, that in retrospect, I would, I would never have advocated. We need, to, we need to be reforming, always reforming our thoughts and our thinking and our worldview to what the scripture says, to what God says. And I look back on those and uh, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed by, by them. Al, Al Mohler tells a, a story about when he was... Uh, a seminarian, and he held uh, he held to the the view of egalitarian. He felt like men and women they had uh, uh, not only were they equal in sight of God, they had equal in every single role in society. So there's no real difference between like dads and moms, like it's just parents. And in the same in the church, like there, there's not not uh, the pastoral or elder role wasn't limited to just qualified men. It was opened up to to anyone, male or female. And uh, he had the honor of actually hosting and going around with um, a very famous, very influential, probably one of the most influential middle 20th century theologians came to the seminary uh, and was giving a series of lecture there. His name was Carl F.H. Uh, Henry. And, um, and as Al Mohler goes to pick him up at the airport and brings him back, and they're talking about various issues, and they're walking across campus to get ready to give their, their first lecture. Al Mohler starts to share all his strong convictions about these, this particular view. And uh, Carl um, F.H. Henry was uh, just sitting there listening and listening, and he would ask some challenging and probing kind of questions. And um, right as they're getting ready to enter in... Um, Carl Henry turns to, to him and says, I think one day you're going to be embarrassed. Uh, one, one day this, is, this belief of yours is going to be an um, issue of embarrassment for you. And then walked into the door and the door shut, right? You know? uh, and, and Al Mohler tells the story. He was right. He was right. And I've had situations very similar to that. Where I've held things and I believe things and I've taught things that, in retrospect, they were an issue of embarrassment for me. How about you? How about you? This is uh, this becoming an issue of a, of, of a far too tolerant church. We need to align ourselves with what the scriptures teach. And to always be reforming. Jesus searches our hearts and our minds. And this, this uh, judgment uh, is not just against the false teacher. This judgment is also against those who tolerate it. Friends, the responsibility, the responsibility for what you believe 
if you're taught something false, that's going to be, Jesus is going to deal with those who taught something false. But he does not exempt you and declare you uh, not guilty if you haven't done the work to do that, uh, to figure out if that work is true or that belief is true. I love the, the words that Luke writes about the, the congregation in um, Berea. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is on his missionary journeys and you have um, uh, them sharing the gospel in the city of Thessalonica and the Jews in the synagogue run them out and they throw stones at them and they end up traveling down the road to go to the next town. And it says that the, the believers, the Jews in Berea were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the word of God and examined the scriptures daily to see if it was true. The nobility comes not just from receiving it, but also examining it. And so Jesus' judgment here on this church is that those, if you're going in with this teaching, if you're going to commit adultery with this false teacher, you're going to experience being thrown down too. Don't be Jezebel's children. But Jesus comes to the rescue of his servants, to his people. And there are still some there in Thyatira who have not given in to this false teaching. He says in verses 24 and 25. And this would be kind of the solution or call to disobedience. It's almost like he's, he's separated out those in Thyatira, those who've gone in and tolerated this, this teacher and have given in to what she was, was teaching, which what she was basically teaching is, hey, not only is it okay to be a Christian and do sexual immorality or go and worship in the pagan shrines, it's actually uh, more Christian if you do. Sound, sound like anything familiar you might hear from certain proponents today. And here he says uh, there are those there who have, not, who have done that and there are those there who have not done that. And to those he says, to those who have not given into that teaching, to the rest of you, who do not hold to this teaching and have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. It's probably a spin on her, whatever term that this uh, false teacher was saying. It's saying, I am giving you the deep things of God. And he's like, those aren't the deep things of God. Jesus is like, I know the deep things of God. What she's teaching is the deep things of Satan. He says, and you have not, uh, you do not hold to that teaching and you have not learned what some have called the deep things of Satan. To you, he say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Keep doing it. My only issue is with those who've tolerated it and shouldn't. Have. But for those of you who haven't, keep doing what you're doing. Hold fast to what you have until I come. And then the promise that he gives, he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father. Think about this, this promise that we're given here. I think it's very easy for us to picture how things are going to turn out in the end, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to be a conquering king and a ruler and he's going to have a rod of iron. And he's going to smash the, the wicked nations that are against him and that we're just going to be standing there and watching here, he says, no, you, 
Those who are saints and faithful, actually, you get to be partakers of that as well, too. You get to have a rod of iron like I do. That we get to reign with Christ when Christ comes back. So, friends, are you a too tolerant Christian? This doesn't mean, uh, of course, that we we can't abide by uh, the dictum that says, in essentials, unity. You know, in non-essentials, what's that as it go? Essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In all things, love. You know, so like, hey, let's agree to disagree on some of the things that are that are non-essentials. And that's true. But there uh, the word here is the issue here is are you are you agreeing to disagree on something that Jesus disagrees with? That's the issue. Are we too tolerant church? So friends, here's what I would ask for us to do. Um Let's ask ourselves this question. How are you? Are you growing? Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your love? Are you growing in, in endurance? Are you growing in ministry? And secondly, what have you tolerated that you shouldn't tolerate? What beliefs do you hold that you when examined in comparison with the scriptures, you need to let go of and change. A, a Jesus who you always seem to agree with might be a little bit of a, 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 a Jesus you don't want to have. You know, you, if, you, if every belief that you hold, Jesus never challenges it, um, that I would be worried. So how are you growing and what are you tolerating? Let's stand for closing prayer, shall we? Lord God, we we thank you for your word that speaks to us. God, we ask that all of us here When our works are laid before the penetrating eyes of Jesus, that we can say in honestly, uh, honesty that our latter works are better than our first. God, if that is not the case, we, we ask that you challenge to challenge us to grow. That you develop within us more faith, more love, more service, more endurance. And God, we, we pray that you protect us from being like the Thyatiran church that's just too tolerant. Help us to be aware of the ways in which 
the things that we think and believe and the worldview that we have uh, doesn't align with your word. Help us to see those, to root those out, and to have hearts and minds and souls that seek um, conformity to your word. God, we ask that you do that here in us. As you send each one of us out to the lives and callings that you have called us to. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, may the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.